morning we are back in the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 23, if you have your copy of scripture this morning, Acts 24, 1 through 23, Acts the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, Acts 24, 1 through 23, this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since you threw... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Actually, I wasn't supposed to read verse 24. That's next week's text. So just ignore that you heard that. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about a life of worship, a life of worship. Actually, as we read through this passage of scripture, two times Paul uses the word worship and both times are actually different words that he uses. And, and that kind of prodded me as I was going through this text to, to come up with this, this title, a life of worship. Sometimes in churches, There's a lot of talk about worship. In fact, often worship seems to be misunderstood. And many times we think the only aspect of worship within the church is the music. And part of that is the church's fault. Because in the church, we would often say things like this. um, Let us prepare our hearts for worship. Or we would call the singing time um, worship and nothing else worship. You'll notice that in our bulletin here at the church, we have, uh, have kind of 
laid out things differently than some churches might. We have a call to worship, a worship through singing, a worship through preaching, and worship through giving. Now, to be honest, the bulletin was already in place. It was already uh, a part of the church when I came here as the pastor, and I have a suspicion who who played uh, a role in putting putting it in there like that. But but the reason I've never changed it is because it captures for us what we are doing here as a church. Worship is not just singing, and it's not just giving, and it's not just preaching. It is all of it. In fact, worship is to be defined by the life we live. In other words, people should be able to see our life People should be able to look at our life. They should be able to see the things that we do, the things that we say, the way we act and how we spend our money and all these kinds of things. They should be able to look into our life and be able to clearly see who or what we worship. And this was true of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the word worship appears twice, like I said, in our text. And as we've been studying the book of Acts, it is abundantly clear that Paul worships the risen Christ. In him we see a life of worship. And today, I wonder if our lives truly display that we worship Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, If man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible It should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man. And that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. Some people have said, let me see your checkbook and I will tell you who you worship. In its simplest form, worship means to ascribe worth to something. In the case of the Christian, it is the expression of reverence and adoration of God because God is worthy of our worship. The focus of worship is not on the the form as the form of worship is often changing, but the focus of worship is on the heart of worship. As believers, we worship in the church and we should worship in our homes and we should worship corporately and we should worship as a family and we should worship as individuals. Our life is to be an act of worship. So let's look at this passage this morning, this passage of scripture and see what we can learn today about a life of worship. The first thing I want us to notice as we look at this passage is this enemies of the gospel if we live this life of worship enemies of the gospel will oppose us enemies of the gospel will oppose us the first thing we notice is this opposition to Paul and and when we live a life of worship we have to be prepared and understand that there are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will oppose us As the chapter opens, Paul had been a prisoner in Caesarea for five days. During that time, Felix was sitting uh, or was waiting on the arrival of of the prosecution, which is headed up by Ananias and some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. The fact that the high priest Ananias would take the lead against Paul shows how badly they wanted to destroy Paul. Church, when we live a life of worship, when our lives put on full display that we worship the risen Christ, the enemies of the gospel will stand in opposition to it. They don't want to hear it. Furthermore, Satan will do all he can to stop the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we've seen in prior weeks, God's plan can't be thwarted. It was God's will for Paul to continue his witness for Christ. And Paul is under the care of God no matter how desperate his situation looks, no matter how bad Paul's situation looks, Paul is still under the care of God. Christian, your task in the midst of trials, your task in the midst of pain and difficulties and suffering or anything else that you will possibly face on this earth, your task is to live a life that worships the Lord. That's it. You live a life that worships the Lord. 
and you trust him. You live a life that worships the Lord and you trust him. So enemies of the gospel will oppose us. Now let's look at kind of some of these things that the enemies of the gospel did. What, how they, how they go into opposition against Paul. Well, first of all, let's see that they may use lying flattery. They may use lying flattery. Now, as was the custom of the day, the attorney would offer some praise to the presiding judge and promise to be brief. That's just what they did. And that's exactly what Tertullius did. This was the custom of the day. But it's nauseating. Because even though that it was the custom of the day, it was lies. During Felix's rule, insurrection and anarchy had increased throughout Palestine. He made brutal attempts to put down popular uprisings and it inflamed the people. And most of the Jews living at that time would have been absolutely horrified to hear what Tertullus was saying to the governor Felix. The land hardly knew peace. Felix had not proposed any reforms during his time and he certainly did not deserve the title which we read here, Most Excellent. This is the case of a lawyer playing up to the judge in order to receive a favorable opinion. Sometimes like what we read today or what we see today. We have this lying flattery given to an evil man because these Jewish leaders are opposed to Paul. They are so opposed to Paul, they're willing to give this lying flattery to an evil man just so that Paul would be found guilty. Not only may the enemies of the gospel use lying flattery, but they also may use false accusation. They may, may use false accusation. After Tertullus had given his lying flattery to Felix, he launches into some false accusations, basically letting Felix know uh, that this troublemaker, this troublemaker Paul, has stirred up uh, all kinds of trouble and thereby... He's going to threaten the Pax Romana. Paul is being accused of political sedition. Hey, it worked when they charged Jesus with political sedition. Surely it's going to work with Paul. Ananias most assuredly wanted Felix to treat Paul as he had treated many of the other rebels that had gone before Paul. Let's look at these charges. Charge one that's given is insurrection. Tertullius calls Paul a plague. That's Always good to be called. You're a plague. It's kind of, doesn't sound very nice. And says he stirs up riots. Interestingly enough, he stirs up riots, it says, among all the Jews worldwide. So Paul is a worldwide terrorist stirring up all the Jews worldwide. He's also a plague, someone whose character is thoroughly disease and he's a danger to the morals of the people of the day so Paul is a troublemaking disturber of the peace who's causing trouble and disorder among the Jews worldwide and he's corrupting the people there he is an enemy of the Roman government charge number two he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes Basically, Paul is a religious fanatic of a rebellious sect. This is the only place in the New Testament where Christians are called Nazarenes. My guess is it had to do with either because Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene or because it could lead back to the saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? It is interesting that Christianity is called a sect here as sects promote sectarianism. Christianity does not promote sectarianism, but instead promotes unity, brotherhood, love, and peace. And so Paul is charged with insurrection, with being the ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. And finally, there's a third charge given to him. He is a profaner of the temple. So basically, they're saying he's a heretic who has no regard for the worship of God. This, of course, is a trumped-up charge. 
They originated with the Asian Jews. Interestingly enough, the initial charges said that Paul actually did defile the temple by taking Trophimus beyond the wall. But here the claim is that he, uh, that he was seized by the Jews before the temple was defiled. It is doubtful whether Felix really cared about the defilement of the temple. But Tertullus is probably making it clear that they were within their rights to bring Paul up on these charges because he defiled their temple. Now, a quick side note. Some of you may be reading in a different version of the Bible and you're noticing that, it, uh, that I didn't include verse 7 when I was reading. And that's because some manuscripts, manuscripts then add words to the end of verse 6. They say, and we would have judged him according to our law. And then they include verse 7. But the chief captain, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands and added the words to the beginning of verse 8, commanding his accusers to come before you. The longer Western reading, which uh, passed into the received text, therefore the KJV is not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and is unlikely to be original to the Bible. Verse 7, if you have it in your Bible and if you don't, uh, there, there may be a little footnote down there containing it anyway, telling you this is what verse 7 says in some manuscripts. It describes events that later uh, that, that later an editor most likely added in it in order to explain what was actually taking place. Anyways, uh, we can debate that another time if you want to have a big debate on, on text and all that. But Tertullius brings his case to a close. And then he says to Felix, he invites him to examine Paul for himself. Now look at verse 9. It says that the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Church, can I be honest with you? Sometimes religion causes us to miss Christ. It's tragedy. It's tragedy when people become so religious and so bent on following their religion or their tradition that they miss Christ altogether. And when we follow man-made religious systems, we get into trouble. The reason we get into trouble is because we seek to maintain our religion and the ideas of that religion because this is what my religion tells me to do. And then we're, we begin to follow the wrong leader. Christ, the Christ is not called to maintain a religion. Christians aren't called to maintain a religion. That's not your, that's not your number one goal in life. Oh, I got to maintain some sort of religion. But we are called as Christians to be followers of Christ. And the great need of our culture in today's world is not to maintain a religion. But the great need of our culture is that Christians would follow Christ and that their lives would be lives that were lived of worship to the Christ that we claim to follow. That's the need. That's the need today. Oh, there's going to be enemies of the gospel who will oppose us. They may use lying words and they may use false accusations, but we need to stand firm and not be moved and live a life of worship to the resurrected and risen Christ. That's why we gather together. Now I want to look at the defense of Paul, the defense that Paul makes. Because I believe in Paul's defense, we see what a life of worship entails. And the first thing I think we see is this, a life of worship speaks the truth. A life of worship speaks the truth. Paul gives us calm, straightforward reply to the accusations that were against him. Paul's complimentary remarks towards Felix were actually true remarks. He simply said that Felix had been a judge of the nation for years, about seven years. Paul did not flatter nor lie about Felix's accomplishments. Paul acknowledged his position as judge, letting Felix know that he, Paul, was fully aware that his fate was in Felix's hands. Felix must have been stricken with the simple, straightforward, and honest address that Paul gave. Here's the thing. Paul lives his life openly, not only before God, but before men. 
Paul didn't need to weave some sort of of tale of lies and half-truths. He did not have to mislead the people in order to defend himself. All he had to do was speak the truth and refute the lies. And that's what he does. He goes in order and refutes them based on truth. When we live a life of true worship, we speak the truth. We speak the truth. Let's look at Paul's response to these charges. To the charge of insurrection, Paul speaks the truth. And he points to the facts. He says, it has only been 12 days since he went up to Jerusalem to worship. Paul's making it clear he didn't even have the time to stir up any kind of trouble as his accusers had charged him with. Furthermore, his purpose for going to Jerusalem in the first place was not to stir up any crowds, but to worship. And for this reason, he didn't even preach nor have discussions in the temples or the synagogues or the city. That's what he says. I wasn't even in discussions. His accusers could not prove their first charge. To the charge of being the ringleader of a heretical group. By the way, that word sect, which is used there, the sect of the Nazarenes, that word sect is the word heresies in the Greek where we get our word heresy. Paul does not deny the fact that he is committed to the Christian faith, which, by the way, notice he does not call it a sect, but he calls it the way. He then goes on to affirm his belief in everything that is written in the law and prophets. Additionally, he affirms his hope in the resurrection, uh, which was denied by the Sadducees and affirmed by the Pharisees. Paul's making it clear that even as a Christian, he acted as a true Jew and he was in line with the Hebrew scriptures. The third charge, that he profaned the temple. Paul responds, By again speaking the truth and pointing out the reason that he came to Jerusalem was to bring alms to his nation and present offerings. He makes mention that he had gone through the ritual of purification and he was going about his business. And some Jews from Asia who recognized him and said, hey, look, that's Paul, stirred up the crowd against him. And Paul then makes it clear that these people that brought the accusation against him should be there. They should be present. This is an appeal to the Roman law, which imposed heavy penalties to those who made accusations and then abandoned the charges. Paul concludes by saying only wrong, the only wrongdoing they could even possibly make against him was his statement that the reason he was on trial was because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead. All this is to make it clear that Paul's response was one that was truthful. And church, a life of worship speaks the truth. Here's the thing. When we live our lives always speaking the truth, it's very freeing. You know why? Because you always know what you said. I mean, if you're always putting your spin on it, always trying to make yourself look better, then you have to try to remember what you said. And... and who you said it to, hoping that those people that you are trying to oppress don't get together and start comparing the notes with one another. Oh, he told me this, and and, oh, he told me this. However, if your life is defined by the truth and you habitually speak the truth, you have no worries about what you said because you know you spoke the truth. Have you ever met someone that always embellishes the truth? Or they always have to put their spin on it to make them look good I think it was at Das Pro recently uh, where I was walking out it said uh, the biggest fish is always the one that got away right because I mean it was, it, was, it was the biggest fish that you ever saw the one that you lost that's why some people are they're always putting their spin on it maybe you know someone when their lips are moving you know they're lying Because they're a compulsive liar. It's difficult to trust these people. As Christians, we are to speak the truth. In fact, Scripture commands us to do so in Ephesians 4.25. And lying is the exact opposite 
of what Christ is to do and what Christians are to do. Because Satan is the father of lies and was a liar from the beginning. John 8, 44. And God is the God of truth who cannot lie. Titus 1, 1 through 2. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. If we are followers of Christ and we are living a life of worship that worships the resurrected Christ, then we should seek to speak the truth in every single situation because we worship the one who is truth. And so Christian, a life of worship speaks the truth. You say, well, that might hurt someone's feelings. A life of worship speaks the truth. Thirdly, point number three, a life of worship lives according to the scripture. Look at verses 14. Acts 24, 14 says this, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. When Paul became a Christian, it did not mean that suddenly the Old Testament was invalid and no longer applied like we hear some people talk of today. In fact, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. When Paul wrote that the New Testament was when Paul wrote that down, the New Testament was not even complete yet. Look, we need to view the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in understanding that there has been a transition from law to grace but we don't set it aside and call it irrelevant and say well that's not even practical this is one of the reasons why we're going to go into an old testament book next the book of jonah god's moral law stems from his character and much of much of that is revealed in the old testament just because we are now under grace does not mean that we set aside the moral law of god as Christians, we need to follow the whole counsel of God's word. We need to read both the Old and the New Testaments. We need to understand how the Old Testament points to Christ and what he fulfilled in the New Testament. We need to understand what is the moral law and what is ceremonial law. And we need to live our lives according to the whole of Scripture. If we are to have a life of worship, then we live our lives according to the letter that is written to us and gives us the standard to live by. If you want to live your life of worship then you got to take the standard that tells you how to worship and you live your life by it so if we want to live a life of worship we live according to the scripture we can only grow closer to the lord as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of his word so we have to if we want to live a life of worship we have to live according to scripture four point number four a life of worship has a blameless conscience before God and men. A life of worship has a blameless conscience before God and men. Now this is a hard one. How in the world can we have a blameless conscience? How does Paul make such a claim? I'm going to go out on a limb here as I was studying this passage of scripture. I'm going to say this. And I'm going to say something that I really, to be honest with you, I can't prove. And I typically try not to do that, but I can't prove this statement. However, I'm convicted of this and I'm convinced of it that nothing stifles worship more than not having a blameless conscience. In fact, I would bet that there are times that you have been in a setting, in a church setting, in a Baptist church setting, or perhaps you felt like maybe you, while singing, you wanted to raise your hand. And maybe you wanted to do something even crazier. Maybe you wanted to get on your face or something like that. Maybe you've been in a setting where you feel like you should pray for something or someone right then and there. Or you have been in a setting where you knew you should share the gospel. And what happens? Well, you convince yourself that you can't do it. Why? 
Well, because you conjure up all kinds of things. Well, I, I did this. And, and if I raise my hand and while we're singing, well, people will think that, that I'm weird. Or people will think, whoa, whoa, whoa. They, are they charismatic? Or, or people will know that I, I did this sin. And maybe you haven't dealt with it. We're going to get to that in a minute. And they see me raise my hand. They're going to think I'm a fake. That's your conscience speaking against you. Or we say, I can't pray because I don't know what to say. Or people think I'm not a strong Christian. That's your conscience speaking against you. Or I can't witness because, because I said a swear word once in front of this pe person. Or, or they saw me do something that, that wasn't right. And so therefore I can't witness to them. That's your conscience speaking against you. You see what I'm saying is, is if we have a blameless conscience. We don't worry about those things. Because our conscience is blameless. It doesn't speak against us because it's blameless. Paul sought to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. Listen to what Paul said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, The aim of our charge is to love that, issues, uh, that, that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Again, to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith so here's the question if our life of worship is inhibited by not having a blameless conscience then it begs the question how do we have a blameless conscience in the first place well in order to have a blameless conscience we need to examine our heart and if there is any sin and thought, word, or deed, we confess it and we turn from it. And if we have wronged another person, we seek to make things right with them. So a blameless conscience is a conscience free of unconfessed sin and is in right standing with God and men. So let's look at a few things real quick because I think some people are like, well, how do you have a blameless conscience? Well, I'm going to tell you. First of all, our conscience must be informed by God's word alone. Our conscience must be informed by God's word alone. There are all kinds of things. There, there, there are going to be all kinds of things that try to inform your conscience. When I was at my conference, one of the speakers said, anytime you exercise your freedom, there will be someone ready with a law to tell you why you can't exercise your freedom. I think that bears true of our conscience. There's always going to be somebody ready to tell you why. Well, well, that's not biblical. That's not, you can't do that. When you live a life of worship that seeks to have a blameless conscience, there will be those who try to speak to your conscience. Right? They're trying to speak to your conscience. But the problem is, it doesn't come from here. It doesn't come from God's word. They try to speak to your con conscience, but not from God's word. I can remember one time I, I preached a sermon as a, young punk youth pastor when I thought I knew all kinds of stuff and then I got older and realized I didn't really know a whole lot but um, uh, I was I was preaching a, a sermon and my sermon had nothing to do with with how you dress right had nothing to do with that it had everything to do with being comfortable and how God calls us out of comfortable situations into uncomfortable situations. And I was, I was talking with Peter um, when, when he steps out of the boat to, to meet Jesus. Now Jesus sent them out in the storm in the first place knowing it was going to storm. And, and anyway, I don't want to redo the whole sermon. But uh, uh, in that sermon, I got up and I was in a suit because I was in a more conservative church. And, and I took off my suit. Jacket, and I said, Boy, some of you are really uncomfortable now. And then I took off my uh, tie, and then I was like, Oh man, some of you are about to lose it. And then I took off my outer shirt, and I had like a polo on. And man, I said, Some of you are just flipped out. And there was one lady in the front row, she was yelling, Take it off! And anyway, uh, that's as far as I went. I didn't take anything else off. But um, this guy approached me afterwards, one of the elders, and he was, he was really mad at me. And he, he said, you've got to wear your Sunday's best. And I said, will you show that to me? And he couldn't. And like I said, I was a young punk and I like to fight and argue. And 
That didn't go over so well. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is there's always going to be people that try to inform your conscience by not using God's word, by using opinion. Ever since the fall of man, our conscience all by itself also is not a safe guide. These Jewish leaders want to kill Paul. And Paul, though he was once serving God by persecuting Christians and certainly thought that his conscience was clear, if our comparison for our conscience is to others and not to Scripture, we're going to always come to the conclusion that we're okay. But the Scripture is the Word of God, and it's like a sword, and it, it, it pierces our innermost being, it says. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, and, it, and the Scripture says it lays us bare into God's holy presence. Hebrews chapter 4. So we must go to God's word and allow its standards to inform our conscience and not the standards of men and not the standards of our culture, but the standards of the word of God has to inform our conscience. Secondly, if you want to have a blameless conscience, you must confess and turn away from sin. Plain and simple. If we, if we have uh, if we want to have a blameless conscience, enabling us to live a life of worship, we must ask the Lord to reveal sin in our life and confess that sin. Often we ask God to reveal sin and, and then he reveals sin. We don't confess it nor turn away from it. Sometimes we clean ourselves up on the outside. So we look good to others on the outside. And when we do that, we're just hypocrites. When someone is able to have a passionate worship in their life, you ever see someone that just, just has passionate worship uh, throughout their life and you're like, wow. One of two things is true. Either they're faking it, which some people do, and I know you've seen that, or they have a blameless conscience. And we can fake it in front of others, but you're never going to fake out God. Because he sees the heart. And all sin begins in the heart. And if we're not in the habit of confessing sin. And we think we can have a blameless conscience. Then you're living a life of self-deception. We can't blame others. We can't rationalize our sins. We just quickly confess them. And turn from it. You just confess it. Lord, I messed up. Boy, I blew that. You confess it and you turn from it. When we're convicted, we turn from it. And, and, and then we can live a life of worship with a blameless conscience. And so when, when the Lord reveals sin to you or the Holy Spirit reveals sin to you, you, you confess it. You get right. You turn from it. And you can have a blameless conscience thirdly. If you want to have a blameless conscience, you must seek forgiveness from those you have sinned against. Boy, I did it now, right? Sometimes we struggle to live a life of worship because we've sinned against others. Sometimes it's even in this church. Sometimes we struggle even to sing a song, sing worship songs that we call them, and praise songs, or sing any song to the Lord because we've sinned against a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes they're across the aisle. No one should ever be able to say to us, you've sinned against me and never made it right. As a Christian, no one should ever be able to say to you, you've sinned against me and you never made it right. I'm not talking about if you've thought a bad thought about someone. Okay, don't go confessing sin where you've thought a bad thought about someone. Okay, they don't need to hear that. They don't need to hear, well, you know what? I, I used to think that you were a jerk. Okay, they don't need to hear that. All right, because that's, they don't know your thoughts. You confess those sins to God. 
But if you've sinned against another person, whether it's directly or indirectly, maybe you've done so behind their back, through gossip, you've talked about them, maybe you've slandered them, maybe you've torn them down, you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to, you need to get right. It may even be somebody here in the church that you've talked about and you've, you've said things or, or you've offended somehow. You need to get right. We need to take, then after we do that, we need to take proper steps to avoid the sin in the future. So often our churches are filled with people that are holding all kinds of grudges against one another and it hinders us from living a life of worship because we don't ever bother to try to seek forgiveness. Instead, we just, oh, it's just easier just to be filled with bitterness and anger and, and malice and to gossip and to, and to tear each other apart and to backbite and, and all kinds of that stuff. By the way, Christians are really good at blaming their personality for sin. You ever notice that? We're really good at using our personality as an excuse to not seek forgiveness. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but, but I, I have kind of a strong personality. But when I sin, I got to deal with it. I can't just say, oh, well, that's just my personality. I'm just, I'm just a strong personality. Since I'm on it, don't use your personality to be a jerk either. Don't say things like this. Well, if I was wrong, would you forgive me? I mean, what? I don't even know what that is. I hear people say that, well, if I was wrong, would you? That's ridiculous. That's like saying, I'm not wrong. You're the problem. But since I'm such a super Christian, I will go ahead and assume it's my fault. And so I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. We know we were wrong. Your conscience convicts you you were wrong. Just go to that person and say, hey, I'm convicted of fill in the blank. I'm convicted that. That, that I said this to you. I'm convicted that I did this to you. I'm convicted that I talked about you behind your back and I'm afraid it got back to you. I'm convicted of this sin in my life that I know is causing some sort of problem that my, my conscience is not blameless and so I got to get this right and, and, and I'm convicted of, of, of how I treated you, whatever it is. And I have to ask you to forgive me. Do that to their face. Go look them eyeball to eyeball. Or maybe over the phone. But don't do it by like text message. Hey, I'm going to get out my text message. I'm going to text you. Don't be doing that. Or don't send them a Facebook message. I'm going to get on Facebook Messenger. And then take steps to not do it again. Just stop. Just knock it off. Church, there's something real freeing. about having a blameless conscience before others and living a life of worship. There's something about singing before God, knowing that you're right with other people in your church. In fact, some people here today, you may need to seek forgiveness from someone. You may need to go to someone today and seek forgiveness so that you can have a blameless conscience. What's our motivation? Fourthly, if we want to have a, motive, if we want to have a blameless conscience, our, our motivation is our hope in God and the coming judgment. Look what Paul says in Acts 24, verses 15 and 16. You see what he says there? He says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Well, that's key. Both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Our whole motivation for a blameless conscience and living a life of worship is based on our hope in God our hope in God that there will be a resurrection and that this resurrection is of the just and the unjust. So in other words, the just is resurrected and, and is judged and their, and their reward is heaven. 
The unjust is judged and their reward is hell. Listen, if there is, if there is no God and there is no resurrection, and if there is no future judgment, that means that there is no heaven and there is no hell. And that means that we are fools to live as a Christian. If we have no hope in God and if there is no judgment, then none of this matters. Then don't come to church on Sunday. Go do what you want to do. There's no motivation to even have a blameless conscience. If, if, if this isn't true, there's no motivation to have a blameless conscience. Just go live it up and do whatever you want to. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Listen to what he says. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So if this isn't true, live it up. Because there is no eternity. So live for your immediate pleasure of today. Because soon you will be dead. Church, why do you think that people live for the now? Because they have no hope of a resurrection. They have no hope. There's no reason for them to live otherwise. And so they just live it up. Live it up for the glory of today. However, if God lives and the just and the unjust will be raised and every person will one day be judged, then everyone should repent of their sin and trust Christ as their Savior and live a life with a blameless conscience before God and man. You see, our motivation is our hope. That's our motivation. And that hope is found in God and the judgment that's one day to come. If your conscience is not blameless today, if you are not living a life of worship, then the greatest and most urgent need for you today is that you would get right with God. That you would have a blameless conscience. Next week, we're going to look at this decision of, of Felix. And it's not a pretty picture. Even here he knows that Paul's innocent. He knows that Paul should be released. But he doesn't release him. Why? Because he knows the Jews won't be happy if he lets Paul go. He can't afford to have any more unrest among the people. And so he does what most politicians would do in a situation like this. He finds a way out of it. In this case, he postpones the case and uses the excuse that he will decide after he hears the testimony of Lysias, the commander. What this does, it gets the Jews off his back and he, he eases his guilty conscience by making sure that Paul's comfortable and free even though he's in custody. Church, we've made it clear Week after week. That just because we're a Christian living for the Lord. That's not a guarantee that everything will go well. Once again we see this in Paul's case. We see, we see this in the Old Testament. In Joseph's case. If you've read through that. Potiphar's wife. Tries to seduce him. After he's already been sold into slavery. Joseph resists He's thrown into prison. But the Lord is with him in prison. In church, it's better to be in prison and to have the Lord with you than to live a life of sinful pleasure without the Lord. I'd take prison with the Lord any day. It's better to be sitting in a jail with a blameless conscience like Paul than to have money, than to have power, than to have all the things that this world can offer, yet be so far from God like Felix. So this is what I say to you this morning. Devote yourself to living a life of worship. Be someone who speaks the truth. Live your life according to the scriptures. 
Keep a blameless conscience before God and men. Doing this, knowing that enemies of the gospel will stand in opposition to you. And you know what? That may mean you go through hard times and hardship. But you will one day dwell in heaven with God for eternity. This morning we sang that song, It Is Well With My Soul. If you've never looked up Horatio Spafford and why he wrote that song, I challenge you to do so. He was a wealthy man, intending on going on vacation, sent his wife and daughters ahead of him. And they died before he could come and meet them. And when he was sailing over, he had actually received a message from his wife, survived alone. And he was sailing over, and when he got over that spot where they had sunk, where the ship had sunk, he was told this, this is the spot, and he went and penned that song that we sang this morning. It is well with my soul. You're going to go through hardships. But it can be well with your soul. Do you live a life of worship this morning? In a moment, we're going to sing a song. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, I'm not living a life of worship, I'm miserable. I don't live according to the scriptures. My conscience isn't blameless. It's convicting me day after day, week after week. Maybe you just, you just need to get right with the Lord. You just need to, you need to seek forgiveness. Maybe you need to, today, ask someone for forgiveness. Like, like I said, not against thoughts, but something that you've actually done. And Maybe today... You'd never be able to really sing it as well with your soul because you don't know Christ. I'm going to be standing down front. If you need someone to pray with you, I'd be glad to pray with you. If you want to come and pray on your own, then feel free to do that. If you want to pray in your pew, feel free to do that. However, the Lord leads you. I pray that you would respond. Let's close with prayer this morning.